But we're talking about today, Holy Week, and I thought there's no more appropriate way to start a discussion of one of the darkest days in the history of the world than by talking about a children's book. Any of y'all have children's books that you remember growing up? What are some of your favorites? Somebody tell me one of your favorite children's books growing up. What? The Ugly Duckling. All right? Little engine that could. They still send that out. You know, uh, Dolly Parton sends a book to every child in the state. It was not really Dolly, but her face is on everything that gets sent out. And the Little Engine That Could is the first book they send out. Anybody else got one? Hungry Caterpillar, all right? What's that? Curious George, right? Well, today I want to read you a children's book. And it is my favorite children's book. And so I'm going to, you can't read a children's book standing up. You have to be sitting down. So I'm going to get my stool out. And it's my favorite children's book. And it's a book called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Alright? Now, here's the thing. I know you all wanted to see the pictures. And I'm not going to walk around and show you all the pictures. I worked at a preschool when I was in seminary, and you had to show every child every picture. So, we're going to attempt to have it up on the screen matching what I'm doing. Alright? But I want to read you. How many of you ever read this book? Know this book? Alright. Good. Then we all just read along to get... Well, let's don't do that. That would sound weird. Alright? Here's the story. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick's found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Miss Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be sick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of a sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. (laughs) At singing time, she said, I sang too loud. At counting time, she said, I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his next best friend and I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on a tack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off the cone part and lands in Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag. Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds, and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on the top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was. Because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist. 
And Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said, I'm moving to Australia. On the way downstairs, the elevator door closed on my foot. And while I was waiting for my mom to go get the car, Anthony made me fall where it was muddy. And then I started crying because of the mud. And Nick said I was a crybaby. And while I was punching Nick for saying crybaby, my mom came back with the car and scolded me for being muddy and fighting. I'm having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, I told everybody. And no one even answered. So then we went to the shoe store to buy some sneakers. Anthony chose white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose red ones with white stripes. I chose blue ones with red stripes. But then the shoe man said, we're all sold out. They made me buy plain old white ones. But they can't make me wear them. When he picked up my dad at his office, he said I couldn't play with his copying machine, but I forgot. He also said to watch out for the books on his desk, and I was careful as could be except for my elbow. He also said don't fool around with his phone, but I think I called Australia. My dad said please don't pick him up anymore. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate limas. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot, I got soap in my eyes, my marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took the back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good Very bad day. My mom says some days are like that. Even in Australia. The end. Now, let me ask you a question. Anybody ever had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Anybody had one of those? Alright? We've all had them, right? In fact, one pastor says that bad days happen to everyone. They come along much more frequently than we think we deserve, and they often last much longer than we think we can bear. Here's one of the things that's interesting about the Savior that we serve in Jesus, is that He is not immune to bad days. In fact, one of the things that makes it comforting to us is the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is a high priest, or someone that speaks on our behalf, and that He is not someone that is unfamiliar with the ways that we suffer. In fact, it says that He is not unsympathetic to us. And today what we're going to talk about briefly is the worst day in the history of the world, or so it seemed. You see, Jesus was not immune to bad days. In fact, He had days when people that He loved rejected Him. He had days when people that He cared about left Him. He had days when people that He adored didn't believe Him. There's a moment even in Scripture when He looks out over the city of Jerusalem and He thinks to Himself and He cries and He weeps and He says, if you would have just let me, I could have done so much. But his worst day came on what many people thought was his last day. I want you to think about the last 24 hours that Jesus spent on this earth before the resurrection. 
It all started on Thursday. And on Thursday he said, Hey guys, I need to have a time with you. I want to eat the Passover meal with you. I want to do something special with you. And so he sent them ahead and they got ready and they went to this place and they got it all ready for the Lord's Supper, the communion, the Passover meal. And so as they sat around, Jesus begins to talk to them about, guys, you got to listen, some bad things are coming down the line. And they're like, no, it's not, Jesus. Just eat, have fun, relax. Why are you being a downer on our party? Let's have a good time. By the end of the meal, what was once 12 becomes 11. Because Judas, one of Jesus' followers, in fact, somebody that was so entwined in the midst of the ministry of Jesus, he was the treasurer. Now think for a minute. You don't make someone you don't trust the treasurer. Right? I mean, if you're giving the money to somebody, you're going to trust them. So they trusted Judas. Judas leaves the midst of the dinner and goes off to do what he needs to do. And Jesus says, go ahead and do it. Jesus leaves the Lord's Supper. Where does He go to next? The garden, right? So what does he do in the garden? Well, he gets his three closest friends and he says, listen, everybody else is going to stand watch out there. You come with me. I'm going to go over here and pray. And think about this scene. In the midst of this scene, while his three best friends or three closest associates are sleeping, Jesus is praying. That he's not just praying in a sense that we pray. It's not like the prayers that we prayed even this morning or the prayers that you pray most of the time. This was a from the heart, gut-wrenching prayer to the point it says that he was literally bleeding out sweat. There's a medical term for that, but uh, I'm not going to impress you because I don't know how to say it. But the point is, he was at such stress that he was literally sweating blood. The end of that moment, he goes back to the three and says, get up, the time has come. And he looks, and the one that had just been eating the Passover meal with him, the one whose feet he had just washed, walks up to him, a Roman guard ready behind him. And when a Jesus' closest friend betrays him, it starts a whirlwind of activity. Jesus is led from Jewish official to Roman official back and forth as they're trying to find any reason at all to punish Him. And it devolves rather quickly. The, the idea of a mob mentality literally takes place there. And they take Him from place to place to place. And before long, He has a crown of thorns. And He has been beaten beyond recognition. His back would be open with the wounds from what they had done. And they take Him and put Him before the people who on the Sunday that we celebrate today, Palm Sunday, had said, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And instead of saying, Blessed is He, they start yelling, Crucify! Him. And Jesus sees faces and people in the crowd that had supported Him now turn on Him. They drag Him away. They put the nails in the wrists. They put the nails in the feet after He's carried as far as He can the cross. And they make it to the place on the hill and they set Him up before all people to see. Between two common thieves is hung on a cross a man whose crime was challenging the religious leaders of the day with words that they couldn't accept or believe. That's a pretty bad day. And I'm not trying to trivialize it. I've called it Jesus and His terrible, horrible 
no good, very bad day. I'm not trying to trivialize it all, because that's about as bad as you can get. I'm going to guess that even in your worst days, it wouldn't hold a candle to that kind of day. But what's amazing is, in the midst of that terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, you don't have Jesus complaining like Alexander, or like you and me. In fact, some of the most profound things He says come on that day. In fact, if you put the Gospels together, it's the seven, some people say it's the seven sayings of the cross, or Jesus' seven last sayings. The truth is, the seven last sayings aren't really accurate, because even when He dies on Friday, the story's not over. Amen? And so the seven last sayings, we're just going to walk through them briefly, and then I'm going to, I'm going to take some lessons out of that I think we can learn about what we can do on our terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. First of all, the first thing that we have recorded that He says... Now, think about this. He's hanging on the cross. The first thing that we have recorded Him saying is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Hanging on a cross, beaten, bloody, barely able to talk, struggling for breath, He says, Father, forgive them. He follows that with a statement to one of the thieves on the cross. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. He then goes to what seems like kind of a strange thing. He he talks to one of his disciples that's there and his mom. And he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Kind of a strange mix in the midst of that. Then he cries out with the first line of a psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not long after that, his physical nature just takes over and he just says, I'm thirsty. As the time draws closer and closer, it comes to a point where he utters two final things on the cross. First, it is finished. And then he calls out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Seven sayings that we're going to cover in ten minutes. But here's what I want us to do. We could do a sermon. In fact, there are lots of people that do sermons on each particular one. I just want us to think through, how do we handle bad days? Some of you may be going through one right now. You may be going through a difficult time professionally, physically, emotionally, relationally, with your family, with your job, with, with things that are just happening in your life. And you say, well, how do I make it through? How do I handle it when these days come? Here's the truth. If you're not going through it now, you will be soon. So how do we handle it? Four lessons from these things. And again, uh, each one stands on its own, but I want to do four lessons from these words. And the first one is kind of a strange one to begin with because you really have to have some work on uh, in your heart to be able to do this. But the first thing that we see Jesus does that we need to do is that we need to forgive the people trying to ruin our lives. Now, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's amazing how tender those words are. 
I mean, he's looking at the guys that have just nailed him to the cross. He's probably looking at some of the people that love the charge to crucify him. He's looking at the people who have brought him here, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. One of the things that I've noticed in my life, and this may not be true of yours, but I've seen it in many people's lives, is when we're having bad days or seasons or years or decades, is we always look for someone else to blame. And we always sense that somebody else out there is out to get us and they're the cause of our bad day. Now, if there was anybody in the history of the world who had reason to be upset with what people were doing to them, it was the perfect Jesus on the cross. What happens with me and what happens with you probably is that when bad days start happening, usually there's something somebody's done or is doing. We like to play the game called amateur shrinks. You know what that game is? Where we determine what other people's motives are. And we determine through our own way of psychoanalyzing people that they're out to get us. Here's the thing that I've learned just in my few years of ministry. Most of the time, people's motives are much purer than we give them credit for. Here's one of the things that that happens sometimes in ministry. I know this is going to surprise you. I've been pastoring for almost 11 years now. And I have, in my 11 years, made some people very mad. I have made some people very upset. I have had people leave the churches that I'm pastoring because they get upset or mad at me. And oftentimes they will tell somebody, well, he knew what he was doing, or he intended, or he must have. And here's what I realized most of the time. That was not my intention at all. Anybody here ever had somebody assume you had bad intentions when you weren't even thinking about that kind of stuff? Anybody ever had that happen to you? Yeah. I remember at my first church, there was a day when I was walking down the hallway... And there was uh, a senior adult lady walking towards me, apparently. Somebody that I, I'd, I'd eaten with the week before, a Wednesday night meal. Somebody I had seen at a senior adult function two days earlier. And I was walking down the hallway. And as I was about to say hello to her, somebody grabbed me from the other side and said, Hey, Pastor, I need a word real quickly. And so I said, Oh, okay. And I just turned this way. She didn't show up to church for three weeks. Somebody said, you need to go check on her. I said, well, is she sick? or No, she's, she says you're mad at her. I'm mad at her? Why would I be mad at her? She said, well, you were walking down the hall and you just turned the other direction. Didn't even acknowledge her. Now, that's a simple example. But oftentimes when we're having bad days, we're looking for excuses or reasons to blame somebody. And what Jesus did on the cross is absolutely remarkable. Now here's the thing. We know that these words had a great impact on the first believers. Now one of the reasons we know that is because the first martyr we see in Scripture comes in Acts chapter 7. It's Stephen the deacon. And does anybody know what Stephen says as he's being killed? Don't hold this against them. Forgive them for what they're doing. Now... If Jesus can forgive the people that are literally putting Him to death, don't you think you can forgive the people that are trying to ruin your day, whether they mean to or not? 
I've said this before, it was a quote that I heard that said that, that bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. We try so hard to be bitter and it only hurts us. So in the midst of your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, forgive those trying to ruin your life. Here's the second thing. Remember part B of the greatest commandment. Now somebody tell me what the greatest commandment is. We are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And part B is love your neighbor as yourself. Here's one of the things that's amazing. Your bad day can become almost instantly better when you become other-focused instead of focusing on what's happening to you. Start thinking about other people. Think about Jesus on the cross. He's on the cross. He's there. He's paying for the sins of the world. The sins of the world are literally on His shoulders. And in the midst of that, one of the things that happens, one of the things that goes on, is the two guys on either side of Him are talking about Him. Right? When we first see it, He's not in on the conversation. One of the guys starts mocking Him, and the other guy says, don't mock Him, He didn't do anything. So can you imagine, you're hanging on a cross trying to breathe, and people are talking about you while you're dying. Jesus, in the midst of that, never lost sight of His mission. In Luke 19, He declares His mission in this way, that I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. So on the cross, as He's dying, the thief that's beside Him says, when you go into your kingdom, do what? Remember me. And what does Jesus say? I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. Don't ever forget that God placed you on this earth as part reason to be a blessing to other people. That when you're in the midst of your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, week, month, one of the easiest things to do is to turn inward and to think about how terrible your life is. Seek out other people to help. It goes a step further the next little thing we read. He's on the cross and he looks down and who's at the foot of the cross? His mom and John. Now I've heard of making sure your affairs are in order. But Jesus makes sure his affairs are in order as he's clinging to life. Jesus was the oldest of Mary's kids Most people believe by this time Joseph had passed away. And when Joseph passed away, Jesus would have taken over kind of the leadership in the family. And so for a mom to lose her oldest son was like her losing her husband again. The one she depended on financially for the rest of the family. It would have been a huge loss. Now, Jesus was in her, was in his thirties. Mary would have been a few years older. 15, 20 years older, but his brothers and sisters or whoever would have been part of the family would have been younger. He probably had teenagers. He probably had maybe even children that were a part of that family. It depends on when Joseph passed away. And Jesus was kind of seen as the one that was supposed to be the one making sure the family took care of it. And he had abandoned that for his ministry. And he looks down and he sees John and he says, make sure you take care of my mom. An act of compassion from there. Let me ask you a quick question. When you're having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, who gets the brunt of it from you? Who do you take it out on? You've heard the sayings, right? If 
If I'm having a bad day, everybody's going to have a bad day. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Right? And you know the default is, when you're feeling bad, you want everybody around you to feel bad. Let me let you in on my misery. Misery loves company. And so we like to take it out on other people. The ones closest to us and those people that we just run into. What if instead you remembered part B of the greatest commandment and you loved your neighbor? You remembered your mission and you took care of those closest to you. Two more things real quickly. First of all, number three. Point your hard questions in God and don't be afraid to admit your weakness. When you come to this moment and you've got all this stuff going on in your life, one of the things that we like to do is sometimes we like to question God to other people. Or we like to analyze it on our own. One of the things that happens in this midst is Jesus cries out from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've got your Bible uh, open, if you've got where you can take notes, um, just write down, well, you're not going to find this, that passage, but next time you're at that passage, because I didn't have you turn there, but next time you're at the passage where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then what I want you to write down is Psalm 22. It's Matthew 27, verse 46. Because what's important to realize is Jesus isn't just declaring that, although there's theological statement in that, what he's really doing, most of the times when, um, you know, the Psalms were kind of the psalm books of, of the Israel uh, during the time of the exile and after, and even during this time in the synagogues. And instead, of, they didn't have numbers though. They didn't say turn in your hymnal and your psalter to number 122 or to 22. They would just quote the first line of the psalm. It's like, everybody turn to, I heard an old, old story. Or everybody turn to, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That's what we're going to sing. Or they would just start out and he would say, they didn't have screens back then. I don't know if you knew that or not. They didn't have screens and they really didn't have hymnals. But they would say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And on the second line, everybody would jump in. Well, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22. Listen to what Psalm 22 says. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Psalm 22 continues. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Jesus is saying, that he is going through the most difficult thing he has ever endured. And in the midst of that, he doesn't take his questions to anyone but God. Can I tell you something that you already know, but sometimes we forget? God is big enough to handle any question you can bring to him. God is big enough to handle any problem you have. He's big enough to handle any situation you are. To think that you have a problem that is bigger than God is to diminish the size of who God really is. And what Jesus does is, He cries out to the Lord in a very public way, but also in a very personal way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even in the midst of this time, he also isn't afraid to just admit the need and the weakness that he has. One of the most difficult things in times of real difficulty is to admit that we can't do it on our own. And we have 
need. And Jesus, even in a simple statement like, I am thirsty, reminds us that He was completely human in the midst of His suffering. Just because He was about to succeed in fulfilling the ultimate reason for His coming did not mean that it didn't hurt and that He didn't feel pain. Take your concerns to God and admit your weakness. And then the last thing is this. Trust God and surrender to His will. Trust God and surrender to His will. One of the single most important words in all of Scripture is a word that we translate as, It is finished. It is one word in the original language. It is one form that means I have come to do what I was intended to do. You know, one of the things that strikes me as you read Scripture, we've been studying Revelation on Wednesday night, and it seems like week after week this just kind of comes to mind. And Seeing Jesus even on the cross reading about that, one of the things that comes to mind in singing Scripture is God never promises that the path He intends for us to go will be worry-free or pain-free. He never promises that. What He promises is there is a plan that if you follow will bring greater joy and fulfillment in the end. Now for Jesus, that was after death. In Hebrews chapter 12, when it's reminding us to run this race with endurance and to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, it says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He remembered that there was a purpose in the pain. And when it came time to finish, that purpose was still at the forefront of His mind. He says, It is finished. The word there literally means it has been finished, it is being finished, and it will forever be finished. It is done. It is over. The effects of this will last for all eternity. Jesus, I don't think, necessarily saw a picture of us sitting here today, but He knew the ramifications of the fact that what He was doing on the cross would make it possible for us to find forgiveness and healing and joy in the midst of a world where those things are not easy to find. And that what He did on that day had a purpose that carries into eternity forever. And then He just simply surrendered. One of the most difficult things in our lives is to surrender to the Lord. But I want you to think about how difficult it must have been for Jesus. Jesus is the one, Scripture tells us, who controlled all things. He controlled everything. And in this moment, He was letting go of all control. They they say that one of the most difficult things for successful businessmen or CEOs or teachers or people that run programs is to surrender control to something that they've helped to build. Colossians tells us that the whole world is held together by Jesus. And in this moment, He surrendered. In the midst of your terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, sometimes the thing you do is you say, Lord, there's a purpose here. I'm just going to trust You. 
I'm not going to try and figure it all out. I'm not going to try and work it all out. I'm going to do what you call me to do. But I just trust you. This week, the world will turn its attention. Well, let me alter what I was going to say. Some of the world will turn their attention to a man who lived 2,000 years ago. Some of the world will turn their attention to bunnies and eggs and dresses and spring. But hopefully for those of us in this room, we will turn our attention to a man who lived 2,000 years ago and who in his final week took care of everything he needed to take care of and in his last moments on earth taught us some of the most important lessons and theology we can ever learn. And maybe this week, or maybe next week, or a year from now, when you find yourself in a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, you'll remember that you need to forgive those people that are trying to harm you. That you need to remember the part B of the greatest commandment, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That you remember to take your concerns to God and admit your own weakness. And then finally, that you'll remember to just be part of God's plan and surrender who you are.